On this Packet Pushers episode, we dive into the guts of Cisco iOS XR. What does it mean for iOS XR to be carrier grade? What kind of problems need to be solved by large service providers, and how does the architecture of iOS XR solve them? Cisco is our sponsor for this trip down the rabbit hole, and joining us in the virtual recording studio are Jag Tangarala, Principal Engineer, and Praveen Bhagwatula, Distinguished Engineer. Now, Praveen, uh, let's start with you. I a lot of the people that listen to the show, they, they've worked on a variety of Cisco gear, various flavors of iOS, and we've done a bunch of shows on iOS XR. Um, and, and again, we're positioning iOS XR as, as it, back in the day when it was designed, it was trying to solve a bunch of problems that carriers had. So if you could describe the needs that, that a carrier has, a service provider has, in, in just a few words, what, what would that be? Is it, is it scale or reliability or, or perhaps love or acceptance? Absolutely, Ethan. Uh, so if you, if you look at the uh, the networks in the mid to late 90s, right, they were mainly designed to uh, provide basic connectivity for applications like email, some FTP, and so on, right? But as networks started to become uh, ubiquitous in late 90s, early 2000s, and when carriers started to offer services with very tight service level agreements or you know, very high uptime requirements like critical infrastructure riding on top of this, they were primarily driven, like the networks were primarily driven by four factors, right? It's reliability, very high scalability, very high performance, and ultra availability. And in a lot of cases, um, all these different factors really need to work in tandem. It's not like, you know, system or a network can only support high availability, but not performance and vice versa. So the need of the hour was really to um, build a system and a software for that system where these characteristics essentially are first-class citizens, right? And as we started to roll out our conversations with a lot of service providers in, in late 90s when we were building uh, you know, CRS, which was the first uh, incarnation of iOS XR, these were primarily the requirements that came about um, as the business requirements that drove the rest of the journey on XR. You, you mentioned scalability, ultra scalability, you know, very high scale. Could you put that in terms of, I don't know, something that the, the average engineer would understand? Would that be numbers of routes? Would that be throughput? How would you define that? Yeah, so it, it's actually um, two, uh, two or three primary dimensions, right? One is the scale of the system itself. So the speeds increased, and as, as we started to move from one meg megabit services to 10 meg to a gig, the system started to now scale into hundreds of gigabits, and this is in, in, in late 90s, right? The system started to scale to hundreds of gigabits that really need to be processed through that particular router. The second thing is the scale in terms of the number of routes. As internet was growing rapidly, we really needed to design a system that would last for you know a decade, two decades to come. And if you look at the anticipation, like if you were anticipating the growth of the internet, the scale in terms of the number of services, the number of routes, the number of interfaces, policies, and so on, had to really grow exponentially. And the system that was designed and put in place had to really cater to this, not just when it was deployed in the first year, but for like many years to come. Yeah, Praveen covered it well. I just want to add one more requirement. Essentially, it's about iOS XR's need for adaptive evolution. So essentially, we wanted to build uh, iOS XR network operating system for decades to come, and it should have a lot of good uh, adaptive 
uh, evolutional features. And you can see that we have evolved XR over the years, starting from core to, you know, uh, it going into core, edge, and access products. And then uh, it started with QNX as its base operating system, but then uh, we evolved it to move on to Linux as its base operating system. And then it moved from routing to routing and optical products, started with uh, custom silicon, but then we are supporting merchant silicon as well. And also Cisco only hardware is started with that support, but then we support white boxes and virtual routers and Cisco hardware now. So essentially that adaptive evolution, uh, that's another major requirement that uh, iOS XR has kept in its mind. It seems like if you're talking about adaptive evolution, you sort of have to anticipate how things are going to develop in the future or try to leave yourself some flexibility for things you don't anticipate. How do you do that when you're designing an operating system? We do it using key architecture and design patterns that are uh, modifiable, so to speak. And also uh, there are various other architecture patterns like loose coupling and modular constructs, decoupled abstraction planes and things like that that we're going to cover the rest of the podcast. Okay, great. So in the meantime, then, uh, you've got iOS XR in the whiteboard stage. You've sort of outlined these these five requirements you needed to develop for. Uh, you mentioned things like QNS and Linux sort of being around. Are there other technologies that you could draw from when you were designing iOS XR? Yeah. So when iOS XR started its journey several years ago, Google, Facebook, AWS, etc., these were not around. The world had not yet begun to massively scale, so to speak. Many of the massively scalable distributed system patterns that are perhaps more familiar to software developers these days were not that popular yet. Uh, they were mostly limited to textbooks or were part of few closed commercial software implementations. Uh, there weren't yet messaging infrastructures like ActiveMQ, RabbitMQ, ZeroMQ, NanoMessage, Kafka, etc., or even in-memory databases like Redis, Memcached, uh, Hazelcast and distributed file systems like HDFS, LustreFS, and so on, right? So around this time, Cisco had embarked on building uh, the next generation carrier grade operating system with the above mentioned requirements. Pulling this off required leveraging the deep networking knowledge base that Cisco has. In addition, uh, to meet the rigorous service provider requirements for this NOS, a slew of groundbreaking infrastructures and distributed system architecture and design patterns were brought into the system. Some of these are things like data partitioning, horizontal scaling, message brokers, distributed databases, pub sub patterns, data centric and process centric way of communication in the system, asynchronous IO, group communications, uh, logically centralized and physically distributed architecture patterns, distributed virtual file systems, distributed directory services microservices and one is to end replication and consistency models and even topology discovery protocols and leader election algorithms. So all these things that I have just outlined, these are the things that well, we are used to hearing more and more these days. And But in fact, all these things are baked into the iOS XR architecture. In other words, you didn't have a whole bunch of open source projects to draw from to bring those features into XR. You... You had to create them at that time. We're going back several years here. Again, as you said, before all of these projects became prevalent and the architectural components you just listed off became fairly commonplace. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, um, you know, I don't know if 
open source were available, we would have started off with those things because many, for many of these things, we actually, you know, first thing, okay, we wrote them in C, so it gives us a lot of performance. And then we also uh, kept our requirements closely in mind in the context of a network operating system. That means we need to bring these things to scale network operating system, but then fortunately we don't have to target for this really massive scalability, right? So that gives us a lot more flexibility also. And yeah, so in that sense, yes, we the iOS XR has pioneered many of these architecture patterns in the context of uh, a catered network operating system. Hmm. Well, let's move into the architecture itself then. We've kind of set the stage. We understand what the use case was. We know what you were up against trying to design such an operating system to meet the needs of carriers at the time. Let's get into the the nitty gritty. What's going on down in there? Uh, and I think we need to start with the infrastructure plane. So to set the context here, I mean, engineers listening to this show, they're familiar with the management plane, the control plane, or the data plane, or many of them should be anyway. Now, iOS XR mentions this infrastructure plane, and I think that's important to understanding much of the rest of what we're going to talk about today. So what what is the infrastructure plane, and what are its key components? So let's step back a bit. So how does one architect a character network operating system? So the Cisco iOS XR uh, network operating system is developed by not changing the solution to an existing problem, but rather asking a different question by looking at the customer's networking needs for decades to come. So at a high level, you know, if we were to heavily simplify the iOS XR architecture strategy, it can be explained via six steps. The first one is higher-level abstractions. So appropriate higher-level abstractions capture the essence of the system, and they're key in driving the subsequent architecture and design patterns. So once these abstractions are in place, iOS XR has focused on the large state management in the router. So state here is simply the condition or quality of an entity at any at any instant in time, and it's usually represented by data in the system. Hence, you would see me using state and data interchangeably in this podcast. But essentially, the state management is the second important step. Now, once the state management is modeled correctly, the next step is design and placement of various processes uh, that work with the state in the system. But Processes in the router, they interact with each other within a node and across the node. And oftentimes, it involves moving significant amount of data with specific latency requirements. Hence, the next important logical step we took in the architecture is designing uh, a high-performance messaging infrastructure. Okay, so state means a, a, a lot of, there's a lot going on within the device that needs to be tracked. The variables that are changing, there are routes coming into and out of the system and a variety of other things dealing with the state of the processes and so on. And all of that collectively, if I'm if I understand this right, correct me if I'm wrong, would be described as state. And then to get state to and from the various processes that need to know about uh, certain elements of the state, you need some kind of a message bus. You need some way for all of the elements within the system to share that information with each other. Uh, and so this this gets us to the point of, of what you're talking about now, a, a message bus that we're going to use to communicate parts of state in and around uh, the operating system? Yeah, you're exactly right. So, yeah, you put it very well. 
So the high-performance messaging infrastructure basically enables these processes that are operating on these different distributed state so that you know, the state can be uh, exchanged among these processes as required. Then uh, moving on, the, the, ne the next step, the fifth step is essentially coming up with efficient data distribution access patterns. Um, because once the messaging infrastructure is in place, then all the applications, uh, they have different uh, needs with respect to their data distribution and how they're going to access data over this high-performance messaging infrastructure. So then the last and final step in this architecture strategy is the high availability and upgradability. If we can visualize all these five steps, basically higher level abstraction, state management, process distribution, high performance messaging infrastructure, and efficient data distribution and access patterns as sequential blocks. And you can think of this high availability, upgradability kind of spanning across all these uh, major steps. Now, coming back to your original question as to what the infrastructure plane is, right? So the infrastructure plane is essentially a key entity among the higher level abstractions that I mentioned earlier. So all these uh, subsequent steps, like the state management, process distribution, and uh, messaging infrastructure, data distribution access patterns, high availability and upgradability, all these things are covered by this infrastructure plane. Okay, so we've got an overview of the, the four planes. Can you explain the concept of abstraction in a context of the network operating system and what it means for each of those planes that we've mentioned? That's infrastructure, management, control, and data planes. Sure. So if you look at a good design principle for any large system, it's really to ensure that its key functional components are decoupled from each other as much as possible, and there are well-defined interfaces among them. So what it means is that each of the major components, like in this particular case, the control, the management, the data, and the infrastructure planes, they really only need to worry about how they are implemented and how they are designed, and not really worry about how the other components are implemented and what kind of changes are happening in the implementation and design of the other components. As long as the interfaces that it has to those systems are clean, and as long as it can access the data or publish the data that it needs through those well-defined interfaces, what you know the specifics of how those other components are designed and implemented are actually completely hidden. And this is really what a good abstraction is about, right? So if you look at XR, um, there are several layers of abstractions that are built into it. At the very high layer, we have this logical separation of functionality into these four planes that we talked about. And obviously, when you go into each of those uh, planes, um, like for example, if you go into the control plane, there are several layers of abstraction, which uh, if you remember, uh, some of this was covered on a previous podcast on disaggregation that um, we did with uh, Akshat and Bhavana, where we covered the next level of abstraction. But if I you know, take a step back, um, one good example of this is as we started building XR onto one platform and as we started to kind of migrate that onto other platforms, what we really had to change is the data plane underneath. Like, you know, new ASICs, new NPUs, uh, new forwarders came into, the, came into the market. And we started to migrate the same management plane, the same control plane, and the same infrastructure plane. And, and basically, we had to migrate. We, we could migrate the same management control and, and infrastructure plane onto a new data plane. And this was really possible through a set of abstractions. Right? Another very good example of this 
is the migration of the management plane from a CLI-centric approach to more of a model-centric approach, right? So when we did that transition, or when we as, as we are going through that transition, the rest of the planes, like the control plane and the data plane and the infra plane, really don't have to change. So, so that that's really where, uh, where the power of abstractions come in, comes into picture. So, so let me see if I can say this back to make sure I've got it. So, you're, you're working from a concept of abstraction, and that means your design allows you to be modular rather than monolithic. So. If you need to change one component, it doesn't mean you have to throw out the whole thing and start from scratch again. You just change that one component, and you've got the correct interfaces so that can just uh, feed back into the other components that are already there. That, that's absolutely true. And, and a good analogy that uh, I actually like to uh, think about this in terms of is you know, when you build an automobile, right? There are all these different systems, like the transmission system, the fuel system, and, and you know the, uh, uh, the drive system, and so on. And as technology advances are made in each of those, you know, the automobile makers have just picked up those those new advances and new technologies. They didn't have to redesign the entire automobile around that. So it, it's somewhat very similar to that as to what we do in uh, in XR. I'm kind of thinking of a, a giant uh, a giant Lego where I've got uh, the different pieces I can pop on and take off as as my design needs change or I want to make it look or do things differently. But those interfaces there, that those connections are there, where I can just pop off and put on what I want to do. Absolutely, that's a great analogy. Yeah, mm -hmm. so I just want to add a couple of more things to what Praveen has said with for these abstractions. So they also enable us to achieve scalability as well as high availability. With respect to scalability, right? And uh, these nice abstractions, if they're designed correctly, then yeah, multi-chassis system or even in a, a modular box, right? It enables us to kind of distribute. Uh, um, pieces of control plane across all the available compute. Uh, similarly, uh, we can decide to move management plane across, uh, you know, different RPs in a multi-chassis thing, uh, and so on, right? And similarly, with respect to high availability, also uh, you know, the ability to kind of, you know, uh, have clean interfaces among them and move them around and then uh, uh, achieve the required replications within each of these planes, right? It gives us high availability as well. I want to dig into the idea of state a bit more deeply. We we mentioned it, it's, it's criticality as we refer to the infrastructure plane. I want to understand it because it comes up an awful lot in conversations about network automation and orchestration. People talk about network state. We're talking about network operating system state and what's going on there, but just to, to, to disambiguate, can you give us some examples of state within a network device, what would fall into that category, and uh, and then follow that up with how is all of that state communicated through the device? I think we got a, a lot of it just explaining abstractions and the communications, leveraging those abstractions between processes, but, uh, but dive into that a bit. Yeah, sure. So a network operating system in a router... Um produces a lot of state, especially if we are talking about, you know, big systems. And this router state is created by external inputs, like, for example, configuration or external uh, routing updates that are coming in, as well as internal code flow. We already covered some examples of this state, but let me briefly touch upon them, right? So these are things like configuration data, routing data, interfaces data, high availability data, various feature data like ACL, QAS, statistics, uh, protocol data, environmental data, uh, platform data, basically all sorts of operational data. These are examples of uh, state in a router. Now, 
Uh, this pit, depending on its type, has different axis and frequency patterns, uh, different sizes, and different high availability requirements. So all these things actually influence how we manage this state in the router, essentially how we partition this state, how we place this state across the available compute, how we distribute this uh, state, and how the state uh, gets accessed by different entities in the router. So in order to make the overall system state management scalable and highly available, uh, we have built certain architecture patterns into the iOS XR system. Uh, after taking into account various state and data attributes that I mentioned a few seconds ago. So uh, some of these things are distributed state partitioning, shared state concurrency, state caching, and one is to end asynchronous state replication, and then putting a lot of iOS XR state in user space as opposed to kernel space, and also making use of uh, many of the fundamental principles that are available today in microservices, uh, you know, making use of them for the state management in iOS XR architecture. So there's a lot of stuff here, and you know, it takes a lot of time, but let me quickly hit upon each of these things. So the distributed state, part state partitioning is essentially, uh, it calls for distributing the state across the available compute nodes in the router cluster. These can be like route processors, or line card processors, or external compute processors if they're available. And the way we distribute the state is that, you know, we distribute in a such a manner to minimize communication among the nodes. Also, we try to keep the generated state close to the source node as much as possible. And the source state, basically the state coming from outside, we also partition it and move it to the right node as, soon, uh, uh, as efficiently as possible. But again, there's discrete elements of the iOS XR device in this context. You talked about various route processors, various line cards that may have their own ability to forward. Uh, and each of those components needing some aspect, maybe doesn't need all of the state, but needs some portion of the state so that it can do its job. And then getting that state uh, distributed around to each of those components in a very timely way. Exactly. Uh, to give you an example, right? For example, uh, uh, system databases specific to, to the line cards, for example, interface related configurations, interface states, and so on. In iOS XR, we store them on those line card CPUs, right? So that's one example. Mm -hmm. Then uh, the next thing is shared state concurrency. So when there are two or more processes that have some shared state among them, then XR is designed for concurrent data access by all these multiple clients. So for example, you know, a configuration and operational data can be accessed by multiple uh, internal and external clients. And it's very important that we design the system such that you know, these concurrent data accesses are possible and they happen in a very efficient manner. And the third thing is that you know, we design various uh, caching mechanisms uh, in the router so that some of the state, for example, uh, certain state uh, that is uh, resident on line cards may need to be cached on route process, right? So we do uh, such caching uh, for certain use cases. Fourth one is uh, state replication and consistency mechanisms. The replication is essentially the process of synchronizing several copies of the same state located at different nodes in the router. Um, and it's 
usually used to increase the availability of the system as well as you know to speed up the query evaluation of that particular data. You've got, you've got a copy of it on a redundant route processor. If you have a failover event, state has been synchronized, you know you can continue forwarding operations with consistency. And then in other cases, you have a copy because now you've got a local copy and so you can do a lookup more quickly? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and in a multi-chassis system, for example, right, so um, uh, the configuration is replicated across all the nodes, uh, all the route processors in the system. So that's another use case. Right. So, uh, and uh, when we do these replications, we we do it in uh, basically all these replicas um, act as independent peers, and the, the and the replication happens uh, in an asynchronous asynchronous manner, and that enables uh, you know a, a very good scalability for our iOS XR system. A topic on replication is not complete unless we talk about consistency. And iOS XR also has studied various consistency models in the context of you know, a network operating system. And we looked at strict consistency, weak consistency, and somewhere in between the whole spectrum. And finally, you know, we decided that you know, we will give the choice to applications. And the applications, based on their needs, they choose the consistency model. Uh, you know, this is actually uh, akin to Amazon's Dynamo, providing various consistency models and letting applications choose the required consistency model uh, while taking into account its availability and performance kind of metrics. Right. right. It, it, just, to, just to key in on that, you're really talking about a distributed systems problem, the classic distributed systems problem. Exactly. So uh, we can, you know, usually... We can support strict consistency, but it's very, very costly. And uh, uh, fortunately, at least in the context of it, NOS, uh, we really don't need to uh, go for this very costly uh, strict consistency model. So, uh, so there are lots of details in that. But basically, let's just see that you know we support various consistency models, and applications mm-hmm. can choose choose what they want. Uh, and then we also support distributed virtual file system built again on top of this replication framework. The motivation for this distributed file system lies in the high availability requirements of iOS XR uh, router clusters. Uh, you know, because nodes can go down and come back up online at any time. So we want to access certain key files, for example, configuration files and various other things in a location-independent manner. And we achieve this using this distributed virtual file system. And then moving on, the next thing in the uh, next pattern in this state management is the user space resident iOS XR state. So this dimension deals with distribution of state within a node uh, between user and kernel spaces. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we keep most of the iOS XR state outside the kernel. And oh, we do this because you know, we, we start out with uh, QNX microkernel, and as a result, to begin with, we model the whole system so that you know, there's very minimal state inside the kernel. And we carried forward that, uh, that pattern, that architecture pattern, when we moved from QNX to Linux. And this clean separation between user and kernel space enables several advantages like you know, better stability of the system, a uh, lot more freedom to bring in, modify, and optimize user space code, and, and increased modularity and independent upgradability of you know, kernel and user space code modules. You're getting the performance that you need. You don't have to do kernel modifications, uh, the stability because you're, 
you know, you're leaving kernel processes to the kernel and doing other things that need scale and performance. You're able to isolate them out in, in uh, user space. So uh, that that's a model you can move forward with, with whatever changes you need. Absolutely. In fact, you know, you touched on the, uh, a key metric over there, uh, the performance. Uh, and I want to uh, bring up this, our iOS XR TCP IP stack, which is completely homegrown and resides in the user space. And that enabled us to, you know, uh, bring in a lot of optimizations into, into that stack. And that's, in fact, one of our secret sauce. Uh, this stack uh, plays a key role in iOS XR, BGP, and various other protocol type performance members. And then the last one I want to talk about in the state management is about microservices. So microservices is a hot buzzword in the industry today. Uh, there is actually no golden rule for the architecture in microservice. If we go by different architectures implemented in the industry, we can see that everybody has their own flavor of microservice architecture. So there is no perfect or certain definition, but you know, uh, microservice architecture can be summarized by certain characteristics or principles. So of course, when IOX XR was designed, uh, there was no microservice buzzword. But since we focused on modularity, loose coupling, high availability kind of um, uh, requirements, uh, we, uh, many of the microservice characteristics are actually built into the iOS XR architecture. Let me quickly, you know, try to cover these microservice characteristics. Right? Uh, it typically calls for uh, two or more loosely coupled components, with each component having a specific purpose, and then it calls for functionality getting exposed as a service. Now, in our iOS XR land, the smallest software building block that we have is a component, which can be a, either a process or a DLL, and there are multiple such components. And these components have well-defined uh, each of these components are actually well-defined modules implementing either a protocol or a forwarding uh, or a feature or drivers and so on. So just 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 to, to set some context here for us, you mentioned um, that the smallest element you could break down and define as a microservice is a, is a component, uh, and you mentioned that could be a protocol. So would, oh, for example, BGP as a protocol, would the entirety of that be considered a microservice, or would BGP itself even be chopped up into smaller services? No, no, no. Uh, so in general, the whole BGP can be considered as a component, but we have certain examples where, you know, if a customer visible feature internally can be implemented as micro components. Okay, so we have those examples as well. Okay. So moving on, right? So, yeah, yeah so all these components, uh, they... Uh, by design, they expose a public API uh, that is used by other components, and there are contracts among these components for the communication. And again, microservice calls for each component having its own database, uh, and uh, no other component or service can fetch or modify that data in that database. And in XR land, uh, each component has its own private data and in its own private space, and it's not accessible to others. And uh, microservice also calls for uh, each component in the system to be a cohesive, independent, and self-deployable entity. And in XR land, we have individual components that are bundled and delivered to customers as software packages. Each of these uh, packages, uh, they can be installed, actuated, or upgraded, downgraded at runtime by customers. And then uh, um, packages can be 
installed on all the nodes or a subset of the nodes. And finally, microservices, they call for, you know, a failure isolation, service uh, failure isolation, right? Failure of one service should not make the whole application go down. Now, in the XR land, uh, the component isolation is provided via process abstraction, and we are going to cover more of this in our high availability section. So with that, basically, uh, to summarize, right, so I talked about various state management architecture patterns that we're using. Essentially, I covered distributed state partitioning, uh, shared state concurrency, state caching, money stand replication, and you know, putting the, the state in, uh, in user space and then microservices. In this microservices architecture that you've developed, is there some kind of uh, controller orchestration element that's in charge of all these, or are they all sort of their own independent entities? Uh, these are all independent entities. Yeah, there is no controller or anything. We have uh, orchestration modules within iOS XR uh, yeah. because, you know, we, in, for example, install is a classic case, right? So uh, it needs to orchestrate a certain flow. Uh, so for those kind of things, yeah, we have uh, our own orchestration modules in the context of network operating system. Okay, so like a scheduler or? It's not a scheduler, but it's more about orchestrating the logical flow that is required to carry out a certain task. Okay, got it. So maybe this is a good time to uh, move on to talk about scale. Uh, if you're talking about a single box, one way you can distribute work is across CPU cores or across CPUs in the same box. Uh, if you've got multiple boxes, maybe you can spread that load across those. Does iOS XR have that kind of flexibility to, to distribute work among multiple boxes or cores within boxes? So if you actually look at um, the principles that XR employs in this particular area, there are basically two principles that drive like why and how work gets distributed in, in a large system um, that XR typically runs on, right? And when I say work, what I'm really referring to here are the various planes of functionality that we touched upon previously and like, you know, where do you host what, what kind of functionality, right? Mm -hmm. So the first principle is a principle of localization. And what I mean by localization is you basically put the functionality closer to where the state is. So if you look at a network operating system functions like you know address resolution protocol or what we call as ARP or fast reroute, you know FRR type of mechanisms um, to react to a, a fault in the network very rapidly, uh, SDKs and the drivers that manage the hardware, these are all natural candidates uh, to be placed closer to the hardware because they have very close interaction with the hardware in terms of you know, either managing the hardware or processing the packets um, at a very high rate uh, or tied to that hardware, right? So um, these are great candidates to be placed on the line card CPUs in a large routing system, right? And what localization also allows us in addition to kind of having that um, tight loop performance uh, with respect to the requirements, is it also provides for linear scalability and fault isolation. And so because what happens is when you have a lot of these components placed on the line card CPUs, in a large system, as you start to add more and more line cards to the system, like you know, if you have a 10 slot router or a, you know, a, a 40 slot multi-chassis type of a system, as you start to add more and more line cards, you, you know, we instantiate these processes, these functions repeatedly on all of those different line cards. So you basically get a natural horizontal scaling uh, of the functionality in the system, as opposed to like, you know, running these functions all centralized in one place and then 
the load on that start to become much higher as you start to scale up your system from a hardware standpoint, right? So it kind of brings, the localization basically brings those two uh, aspects, right? One is a close, tight feedback loop uh, with the hardware as well as horizontal scalability. Um, the other thing it provides is fault isolation because whether there is a process level fault or whether there is a hardware level fault that makes that particular function fail. Um, anytime we have localization and horizontal scaling, when something fails, the effect of that failure is really localized, right? So if something on a line card fails, only that line card fails and the other line cards are still up hmm. and running and, and processing. So that's the third uh, dimension to the advantage of localization, right? The second principle that we employ is what we called as, lo uh, as load distribution. And kind of Jack kind of touched upon this a little bit. Uh, what happens in a load distribution is you take a particular functionality, like you know, typically the routing protocols like BGP or ISIS, or there are manageability agents like SNMP, which you know process the, uh, which basically get the request and then push out a whole bunch of MIPS from the system. Um, with load distribution, uh, what we allow is different parts of this functionality, like you know, a, a group of routing protocols, manageability agents, some of the system processing functions like chassis and system management. These can be distributed across different computes in the system. And this is typically what happens across the different route processor um, CPUs in the system, where uh, and, and this is, you know, th th there is some control that, that the user can uh, influence this, but Ideally, and for the most part, this is actually done by the system infrastructure figuring out what's the right places to kind of map these um, different loads and different parts of the functionality. And so it kind of distributes that load among the available compute so that no one CPU or no one core is overloaded. And uh, the system and the software stack on the system is able to make a good use, a balanced use of the available compute and storage on the system, right? The one... How would I say it, right? The, the, the one add-on piece to this load distribution or a side aspect of this load distribution is also redundancy, right? Because once we have the ability to distribute the load and distribute these components to the different parts of the compute, part of that infrastructure also um, enables us to uh, exchange the state among these so that when a BGP process running on a particular CPU, for example, or a particular RP, if that RP fails, we want to make sure that a BGP process on a different RP can take over and continue from where the previous one left so that the rest of the network really doesn't see any impact. So this is also part of the infrastructure that we built into XR um, as part of load distribution. So if I'm to read that back again, it, it all goes back to this concept, this general concept of modular design so that I get scalability, I get fault isolation where one component or one process going out is gonna shut down the whole box. And there's also a failover capability where another service can can take up a service that dies. That is correct, that is true. That is a lot of information. Okay, so, so far, let's just uh, review here quickly. We've talked through the different data planes, including the infrastructure plane. We've talked about abstraction and how the abstractions allow for different components to talk to one another, even if there's underlying changes in the component. Uh, we've talked about state and what that means, how state is maintained, how it's kept consistent. Uh, now we've talked about scaling work and the work of the network operating system across different elements. 
Next, we need to talk about the message bus. So th this is a complex system, and, th and there's messaging that's going on all the time. Sending, receiving, processing messages between the different processes in the system. That's got the potential to be bottlenecked, and that would be really bad if that happened. Um, so let's talk about the iOS XR messaging subsystem. What, what does that look like? How does, it, how does it scale? So messaging is at the core of many architectures, and uh, it's, of course, also uh, a core of iOS XR architecture, and it's a difficult problem. Uh, connecting two pieces is fine, but connecting hundreds and thousands of processes is a different ballgame. Uh, there are a variety of applications like, you know, routing protocols, RIVs, RIVs, features, uh, platform applications, interface managers, manageable agents, all these things, uh, uh, they need to communicate in a router, and they all have different communication requirements that uh, tend to vary with respect to scale, reliability, and performance needs. So we in iOS XR have considered various dimensions uh, before uh, you know, designing uh, our messaging infrastructure. For example, uh, we considered things like point-to-point, point-to-multipoint, multipoint-to-multipoint kind of communication requirements. We looked at the need for deterministic throughput, and we looked at latency requirements. We looked at cost of communication channel initialization, and also cost of communication channel failure, right? And number of copies that get incurred, and uh, number of context switches that happen for messages delivered, the number of system calls, and the scalability to multiple receivers, and whether we are doing copy in kernel, or is that an user mode copy, and is the, is the communication going to be connection-oriented or connection-less from application point of view, and also we need to look at flow control and dealing with slow receivers, receivers dying, things like that. And we also wanted to build this sending infrastructure over multiple transports. And we looked at various reliability semantics, like, okay, is it going to be completely reliable, or can, uh, does uh, do some applications need best effort, and in-order delivery, things like that, right? So once we considered all these metrics, we came up with few design patterns, but here I'm going to just touch upon three key things. So uh, those things are asynchronous IO, group communications, and then pluggable transports. So let's first talk about asynchronous I.O. So with asynchronous communication, essentially the sender and receiver are uncoupled. The sender doesn't know when the receiver processed the message that was sent. So this asynchronous communication results in better IPC throughput and less latency. Because because we're not we're not waiting for the receiver to say acknowledge I received this message. You said they're decoupled, so the message can be left by the sender and then asynchronously picked up by the receiver when it wants. Kind of like email. Exactly, and uh, and and not only that, right? So since you are not waiting, you uh, when you get your time slice from the scheduler. Uh, you can do lots more work, and that way, right, uh, you avoid the thrashing of the processes involved in IPC, and you uh, end up utilizing a multi-core environment in a much better fashion. So we in iOS XR have realized this very early on, and uh, to make the system scalable, we chose asynchronous communication as our key construct in the system. And uh, we kicked off this journey right off the bat with uh, employing this asynchronous IO in our group communications pattern uh, that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. And so essentially we started off 
this asynchronous IO pattern in internode communication, essentially the communication between two different nodes. But subsequently, you know, when we built our CRS multi-chassis, uh, we did various uh, scalability analysis. And uh, during that time, we brought in this key construct for a lot of intra-node communication. That means communication within node as well. So today, most of iOS XR is, uh, is based on a synchronous communication pattern. And actually, you know, we can see this async IO being a key pattern for various other uh, messaging infrastructures as well. For example, when uh, Node.js was launched, I think sometime in 2009, it became popular overnight due to this async IO. Similarly, 0MQ, which is another successful messaging architecture, uh, which is launched around, uh, again, 2000, I think it's around 2007, uh, it also prides itself in its background async IO module, how it uses uh, lock-free algorithms for its queues, how it scales to any number of cores, and how uh, the CPU quantum is uh, efficiently utilized. So, so just again, the big deal here is not you don't want the messaging subsystem to be tying up the CPU while you're waiting for some communications to happen. You you want this to happen uh, asy again asynchronously. Exactly, and after that, uh, uh, the next messaging infrastructure pattern that I want to talk about is group communications. So. In a router, there are many applications that implicitly have a requirement to communicate in a group. So typically, you know, uh, these are related processes on different nodes uh, that need to share some data or sometimes they just need to have some synchronization among themselves. So iOS XR is, in fact, one of the first network operating system uh, uh, that has pioneered this group communication concept with the following, uh, you know, uh, characteristics. These are, you know, uh, first one is, you know, one-to-many reliable group communication. And the second thing is it's all connectionless and completely asynchronous. And the third one is it's built in with efficient resource and data location through reliable multicast. Essentially, uh, you know, Reliable, multicast-based, and asynchronous. These are the keywords worth noting. And because of these, uh, group communication uh, turned out to be a very scalable infrastructure uh, of, um, in this messaging, uh, uh, you know, uh, under the messaging infrastructure. And uh, if we take reliability away from this group communication, it's actually kind of similar to the standard PubSub pattern, where a message gets directed to many subscribers, and publishers and subscribers are completely decoupled. So this PubSub is aimed at scalability, where you know the publisher just pushes pushes the data without really worrying about who the subscribers are, uh, when they come online and subscribe to receive certain messages, uh, whether they are able to receive and keep up with the messages, and whether they have crashed or joined late things like that. But but these kind of uh, this kind of simple sub pattern without reliability uh, is uh, uh, not sufficient for our carrier-grade uh, uh, network operating system. That's why we we added uh, you know a lot more features uh, into this group communication. For example, we have various reliability semantics, and we also have uh, member notification support. For example, uh, if certain members were to go away or if there are any dropped messages in the group, uh, 
for things like that, the the group members, the other group members, they get notification. We also have flow control built into the group communication. So there is a there is a need for one sender to, to send a particular message to several different receivers. Uh, however, the need for that delivery is reliable. You can't just have a, a, a simple pub-sub architecture where you push the message onto the message bus, and if the receivers pick it up, great. If they don't, I don't care. You actually really do care in iOS XR, and so then you've added these additional features that you were just mentioning to make sure that that is reliable. Um, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's that's my understanding so far. No, you summarized it very well. So that's exactly, yeah, what we did. Uh, in fact, you know, if we, uh, you know, uh, try to draw parallels with some of the external software, Zero uh, MQ actually supports various patterns, messaging patterns, but group messaging is one of the things that Zero MQ supports. And when you use that group messaging pattern, you get some additional reliability. Similarly, various other messaging infrastructures also, to a large extent, uh, support you know not just vanilla pubs up, but you know with some reliability constructs thrown into that mixer, right? So you can you can get uh, some of these things. So essentially, you know, uh, we take pride in iOS XR being the the the, mm-hmm. uh, the first one that has pioneered uh, this group communications in the context of uh, network operating system. And I also mentioned about uh, the message uh, guarantee semantics. So the iOS XR group communications, it supports uh, fire and forget at least one, most, and all all reliability semantics. So these are essentially, you know, the semantics with respect to the number of foreign entities from which uh, the producer needs to receive acknowledgments. And actually, we can find, uh, we actually found similar semantics in Kafka as well and other messaging systems. Example, you know, Kafka supports this no acknowledgement, fire and forget mode. It also supports uh, uh, at least one acknowledgement. I think uh, they call it uh, leader persisting the message. And uh, there is also this uh, acknowledgement from all the entities, essentially the leader as well as the sync replica uh, persisting that message. Similarly, RabbitMQ, which is another popular messaging infrastructure, it also has control over you know the number of unacknowledged messages in flight. And finally, in the messaging infrastructure, I want to talk about these pluggable transports. So the iOS XR uh, messaging infrastructure, it is developed with all the required southbound abstractions so that we can plug in any kind of transport. For example, uh, over the course of XR's journey, we have plugged in Ethernet, we have plugged in various switch fabrics, we have plugged in Linux, Linux TCP IP stack, we have plugged in iOS XR TCP IP stack, we have plugged in multicast stack underneath this messaging infrastructure. You're talking there about um, you, you need to present a data payload to a whole bunch of different systems via different transports. And so you've got a plug-in architecture that allows you to stick whatever the wrapper is you need around that data payload? Exactly. So we have those, uh, you know, the send and receive vectors and all the other um, APIs in the southbound direction. They, they, they are very flexible and that enabled us to plug all these different transports. And again, right, uh, 0MQ also does a very good job of this one. Uh, it also supports uh, uh, multiple transports so that uh, we, you can use 0MQ within a process or among processes in a box are 
you know, processes in one network and are, you know, you can enable communication over a multicast group-based thing. And iOS XR does all these things. I just wanted to get uh, some clarification about, you were talking about message guarantee semantics. Is that negotiable among processes in the operating system or do you sort of pick one for everyone? No, we don't pick one for everyone. It's up to each application. So uh, based on its uh, needs, it can... uh, one of these reliability semantics and use it. Okay, so it's flexible. Okay, so does that is there some kind of negotiation that must happen between these components? No, it's just an API. Basically, you know, when you are okay. uh, doing initial registration, you just say that okay, I want to use this kind of reliability semantic. Okay. All right, so we really dug into the message bus and messaging, but we also need to talk about the data that's going into the message bus. Uh, do processes always just subscribe to the right publisher on the bus to get the data they want? Uh, is PubSub not part of the equation in some cases? How do keepers of data provide their data to other processes that need it? Understanding the inherent data characteristics of router cluster is essential in designing and optimizing the network operating system. So uh, IBIS XR, um, in IBIS XR, we design this, uh, taking into account various data distribution and access patterns. Uh, both in you know uh, uh, small uh, single chassis systems, all the way going up to big multi-chassis systems, and uh, based on these insights, we can uh, you know try to categorize the data characteristics into two things. At a very high level, the data has certain access-based characteristics, and then certain distribution-based characteristics, and under access. We have things like the breadth of the access, the frequency of access, and the transformation needs. That means once you access the data, do you have any other transformation needs which you need to uh, carry out on top of the you know the data that you have retrieved, right? And then under distribution, you have to consider the size of the data, the number of consumers consuming that data, and the liveness requirements. Here, the liveness refers to, you know, sometimes the consumers need to be aware of the producer liveness, and in some cases, uh, producer needs to be aware of the consumer liveness. And finally, the last one is tracking. In certain use cases, especially in the context of routing protocols and RIM and how they interact, right, uh, there is a need for the consumers to track uh, track, uh, producer state. That means when producer reaches certain state, then they need to be informed about that. So based on all these things, we uh, um, design two architecture patterns for uh, data distribution and access. Uh, those are, the first one is data-centric communication, and the other one is process-centric communication. So in data-centric communication, uh, essentially the approach is that all iOS XR applications that are planning to use this data-centric approach, they're structured more around the data that is read or written. So the identity of the processes that provide or consume that data is actually hidden in the infrastructure. The data is located by its description, and that acts as a random point for end applications. So to that end, uh, it kind of mimics the PubSub model, but since the processes that share the data will not be connecting to each other to exchange the data, this model is uh, characterized by 
a much looser coupling among the processes exchanging the data. And within this framework, we actually have designed uh, two specific infrastructures. One is SysDB, which is primarily a database into which data is uh, written into or read from uh, with pop-up messaging support. Then we have a second one called ENS or Event Notification System, which is again another data-centric approach, which is flat topic-based. That means the topics uh, in that data-centric approach are flat, not hierarchical. And it's a decentralized one. That means it's distributed across all the nodes. And this uh, ENS, its primary purpose is to actually move the data from one place to another with various reliability semantics. So essentially, again, right, uh, we can uh, compare CCB and ENS to, I think a good example is, a uh, uh, good analogy is 0MQ and Redis. So if you look at 0MQ, it's primarily a messaging infrastructure, uh, whereas Redis is primarily a database. So, uh, but Redis is a database, but it still has this pop-up pattern built into it. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of a secondary one, right? So in, in, a, in a similar vein, uh, SysDB is primarily database with pop-up messaging support, and then ENS is, uh, you know, the, is primarily built to move large amounts of data to multiple subscribers. And uh, one more word about SysDB. SysDB is actually a logically centralized and physically distributed in-memory database. What I mean by that is that as far as the applications that interact with SysDB on the not bound side are concerned, uh, these are typically all the manageability agents. So, so it looks like one single logical entity, but under the covers, you know, the actual database is distributed across all the available nodes. And this is what gives our CCB massive scalability. Um, you can, you know, uh, throw in millions of lines of config and XR can absorb that config without a hiccup. And another thing uh, that's worth mentioning is that, you know, the, the data is in a neutral format. So neutral, you know, with respect to the manageability agents like, you know, various Yang models or CLI or SNMP and neutral with respect to various backends, that means BGP or OSPF or some platform specifics or whatever, right? So the data is stored in neutral format. And uh, and also, SysDB supports high availability. So so in that sense, you know, it's a logically centralized, physically distributed, neutral, highly available, model-driven, in-memory data So Now, so far, I covered data-centric and the two uh, uh, infrastructures that we have uh, under the data-centric uh, methodology. So the next one is process-centric. So in this model, spe uh, specific processes own the data and any process interested in that data must contact the owning process to retrieve or update the data. The processes here discover each other through distributed directory services. And this directory services, you can think of it as a DNS inside a NOS, basically. Right, so it tells, okay, if a process A wants to communicate with process B, then, then uh, this directory services gives the coordinates of that, um, uh, the, the, uh, the receiving process to the sender, and that's how uh, they, uh, they're able to connect to each other. Now, why do we need this process-centric approach on top of data-centric approach? Because uh, remember, we talked about liveness, 
tracking, and then the data transformation needs. So we have various use cases in a carrier network operating system where, uh, you know, uh, we we need to uh, uh, care about these attributes, and based on that, we need to design a highly performing, uh, uh, you know, data transform um, mechanism among applications. So that's why we built this uh, construct as well. And iOS XR makes makes an optimal choice between the data centric and process centric way of communication. Mm-hmm. And that's how we, you know, uh, uh, build the required uh, high, avail- high availability and scalability and performance into the system. Okay, guys, this has been a heavy conversation talking about the guts of what's happening inside of an iOS XR box or, or boxes. Let's tie this back to operations. So let's think of some specific scenarios. Practically speaking, what happens when some process in an iOS XR box crashes? And so contextually, there are folks who have had an experience where a single process might tank an entire iOS instance forcing a device reload. Now, that's different flavors of iOS, not XR. Uh, and the architecture you've described for XR makes me think that a full box reload, that, that's a much less likely scenario to happen because of all the reliability features you've built in. So, so again, help us understand what happens when, when some process in an XR box crashes. No, you're, uh, you're spot on with your observation on that one, Ethan, that the full box reloads are actually a lot less uh, likely. So I'll, I'll try to um, answer the, this question by kind of bringing in the different pieces of the conversation that we had so far, right? Primarily around modularity, abstraction, fault isolation, um, load distribution, and replication, right? So if you, if you look at um, the, the system as we have discussed, and as Jag mentioned earlier, the fundamental piece is a component which is typically implemented by a process. It runs outside of the kernel and it runs its, in its own uh, separate address space. So what that allows um, the system to do is when a process is either restarted for um, some sort of a maintenance reasons or if it fails, it's not going to bring down the other processes that are running on their own data or it's not going to bring down the entire system. That particular process goes down, that functionality may go down unless it has a backup entity, but it's it's not going to bring up, bring down the rest of the system or the other processes, right? Now, that by itself is a necessary condition for making the system robust, but that's not a sufficient condition, right? What you also need to do in addition to having the ability for processes to restart is when the processes come back up, they need to come back up gracefully and they need to kind of pick up from where it has left in its previous uh, incarnation, right? So independent of whether, and it has to do this, whether that process comes back up on the same CPU or if, you know, the process went down because the CPU went down or something like that and the process came back on a different CPU, it has to do the same thing. Well, just to to drill in on that, you said gracefully, as in, uh, let's say it's a routing process, it's OSPF and it's fallen over. You don't want OSPF to have to reform all the adjacencies, do a full table reload, converge, push state uh, into the FIB. You you want it to be graceful, as in, oop, the process fell over, let's keep forwarding and bring the process back up. Okay, don't reset anything. Let it get, let it normalize itself, and then off we go, and, and then we don't really know that it happened. Is that what you mean by gracefully? You are absolutely right. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. So there are, there are a few additional components that I'll touch upon to kind of 
explain the phenomenon behind what you what the the observation that you just made in terms of the packets getting forwarded when uh, when the process when like the OSPF process goes down and comes back up, right? So the fundamental piece that is needed for this to work, uh, and then we'll build on top of that, is is what what we call as checkpointing. And what checkpointing basically means is in in a in a very simple terms, it's really the ability to kind of um, periodically store the state of the process. Like this is essentially all the state that that particular process needs. And, you know, Jack covered in great detail what what are all the state or what is all the state that is associated with the process. So it's the ability to kind of store that state periodically, uh, both on the local CPU as well as one or more remote CPUs to make sure that if for some reason you have to migrate that process from one CPU to the other CPU, then that state is available on that other CPU where the process is coming up, is coming back up, right? So this combination of checkpointing and replication really starts to form the basis of many high availability uh, functions. So just to go back to the uh, example that, that you gave, right? Like OSPF goes down, don't bring down the system, don't let the neighbors panic, the network panic, continue to forward, OSPF comes back up and we synchronize everything. This is basically a combination of three functions that are built on top of the base process restart and checkpointing. One is what's called as non-stop forwarding, which is basically, again, enabled by the decoupling and the abstraction between the control plane and the data plane, right? So the data plane got a set of state from the control plane. It's continued to forward packets on that. And the control plane, in this case, OSPF goes down, the data plane doesn't go down. It is continuing to forward almost in like a headless fashion uh, on the data that it currently has. And that essentially keeps your network intact, up and running. And now when uh, OSPF comes back up, right, it employs what's called as a graceful, a combination of graceful restart and nonstop routing functions. So basically what graceful restart means is that the neighbors know that this is going down and it's, it's going to come back up. Uh, so they don't have to kind of, you know, severe the ties with this particular instance. You know, they pretend for some time as if it ex it uh, existed. So when this comes back up, remember the checkpointing and the replication, right? So SPF comes back up. It's going to read its state back from whatever was checkpointed. And now it will ad advertise itself and announce itself to all its peers saying that, hey, you know, I was, I'm, I'm back. I was down for some time, but everything is uh, is fine now. I have all my state back. And just let me know what is your latest uh, view of the world. And when it gets that state, it compares it with its own state. And any any changes that have happened in the last you know few seconds or so, it will then go and tell the hardware, hey, you know, here's the new state, and now process your packets based on this new state. So this combination, this fundamental ability for like the process restart and the checkpointing and replication. This is on top of which is what we build the other components that I just mentioned, like nonstop routing, nonstop forwarding, graceful restart. And this is fundamentally what allows the system to kind of degrade in a graceful fashion and never fall or never crash or come down when one or a small subset of processes fail in the system. Okay, so we talked about process crashes and restarts. Uh, what's the case for software upgrades or updates? Is it something similar? Yeah, that's actually my favorite topic. So uh, it, it's it's interesting you ask that question because in the context of XR, when we look at this, 
one theme becomes very eminent like in terms of what we have talked about right it's again i'll kind of repeat repeating myself here but it's it's important to state that one is abstraction at different layers and the second one is fault isolation that we talked about so if you start from the four planes that we talked the infrastructure control data and the management planes all the way down to the individual processes there is an abstraction and isolation at different layers in the stack and what this enables from an upgrade standpoint is something very interesting and unique so the fact that individual processes can be restarted without any impact to the other processes the same concept can be extended to upgrading the code that runs as part of that process hmm. so what does that mean right in a normal process restart you bring down the process you re, you, you checkpoint the state you bring down the process you restart the process and then it reaccesses the state and works fine now you insert and you insert one additional step between that bringing down and bringing up the process which is download new and upgraded code and now when the process comes back up it's starting to execute a new piece of code which is essentially nothing but an upgrade or a downgrade of that process right mm -hmm. now before it reads the once when when the process now comes back up with this new piece of code when it reads the state sometimes the data needs to be transformed because in the changed state maybe you know your data structures have changed slightly or the the way you are representing your data might have changed slightly so there is a transformation function that is built into the new code so that when it reads the data it will basically do an on the fly transformation and and then it stores the data in its new format and now what we got with a few little additions on top of the basic process restart infrastructure is a process level upgrade ability right now take that to a set of processes which essentially forms a package so a, a good case in point is bgp bgp is implemented as a set of processes right one process for processing the incoming packets one for uh, you know computing the best path one for sending the output process one for output packets one for programming the uh, the, the routes into the table so if you combine these different processes and you employ the same mechanism that we talked about process upgrades to this set of processes called bgp now what we have is a package level upgrade or a functionality level upgrade like you can upgrade bgp on the on a running system without bringing down the system take that one step forward where instead of one package you employ that same technique to a bunch of packages which is essentially your system software right so the same process of downloading new code bringing down the processes bringing up the processes again with that new piece of code reaccessing the data transforming the data and now working with the new piece of code and new uh, new data or the transformed data is essentially what results in a system wide upgrade of the software without ever really bringing down the system uh, because really because you, you just started talking about the system software, my brain said, well, surely, surely, at, here's the part where I can't forward through this device while I redo. But even the system level software, I can do that as a package and still retain forwarding. Because, again, because of all the, the, the background process, uh, the, the checkpointing and state and data transformation and so on. Even and the there. Part, exactly. Yeah. Huh. So, so, so this this is something that we have actually demonstrated on on a few platforms in a in in uh, some in uh, several of the uh, large service providers around the world, and this and and if you really tie this back, it really ties back to all the aspects of the abstraction and the modularity, 
and the the efficiency and the type of different message buses and checkpointing and data synchronization and coherency that we have talked about throughout this talk it's it's really the culmination of all of this to kind of build one on top of the other that really allows us to take this from a single process restart to an entire system software restart without really missing a beat is there any scenario, I mean, assuming the hardware is all functional, I mean, is there any scenario where once I power up uh, a device running XR that I'm going to have to fully recycle the thing and take it out of service? Yeah, there, there are definitely cases like that. Like specifically when you talk about um, any upgrades that need to be done at the kernel level, uh, kern, you know, uh, uh, you have to basically restart the system. But but the the, the good thing is, what we keep in the kernel from an XR standpoint is really the base OS semantics. And most of the operating system functionality, as you know, Chag and I mentioned previously, really resides in the user space. So yes, there are scenarios where if you have to upgrade the kernel because you know, you're picking up some new kernel functionalities that you cannot do through patches and you have to really upgrade the entire kernel, um, there are scenarios like that. But in the grand scheme of things, given the partition of the work uh, in terms of what resides in the kernel space and what resides in the user space, it's it, it's really a small fraction of the uh, mm. of the total scenarios. Okay, this has been a very practical, educational show. Uh, boy, there's an awful lot of material here. This has been just absolutely great. Appreciate you guys being able to articulate so clearly what's going on under the hood with iOS XR and what that means to us in, uh, in real life, those of us that use this operating system as practitioners. Uh, I, I'd like to give you guys the opportunity just to uh, talk about um, your social media, if you have any of that, if you're writing, or if there's just any other comments you want to make in conclusion, uh, starting with you, Jag. Yeah, so, yeah, thanks for, you know, um, uh, arranging this uh, podcast. It's actually, um, we really thoroughly enjoyed it, uh, explaining all the insights into the, the iOS XR architecture. Hopefully, you know, it gave good insights into various powerful architecture patterns built into iOS XR over the years and how the iOS XR has pioneered uh, various popular, scalable, and highly available frameworks, at least in the context of uh, a network operating system. Uh, and, uh, you know, the iOS XR has actually anticipated and baked in many of these architectural pat patterns that are considered uh, trendy and cutting edge today. And iOS XR continues to evolve as uh, uh, the networking scene keeps changing around it as it has been over the last several years. Uh, what we did in the iOS XR is we kept the foundations pretty simple and that made uh, all these complex things possible over the years. Um, once again, I really would like to thank you guys for you know um, asking some great questions and giving us an opportunity to kind of you know uh, explain uh, our architecture. And with respect to uh, the social media availability, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, and uh, that's about it. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Jag. And uh, the same questions to you, Praveen. No, I, I actually second what Jag said. I mean, it's it's always fun uh, to come out and talk about um, some of the things that happen in the background to to bring out 
um, you know, one of the best uh, network operating systems in the world, um, you know, that, that has been there for, you know, close to two decades now. So thanks for the opportunity. I think it has been a great conversation. It, it's always fun and exciting to kind of talk about some of these things that we have been doing in the background. Uh, and, and I hope uh, the audience really, uh, you know, enjoy it and, and uh, be informational. Uh, yeah, you know, check me out on LinkedIn. I'm available on that. So uh, it's great. Very good. And our thanks to Cisco for sponsoring today's episode. Without our sponsors, we can't do what we do to bring you podcasts, blogs, and news that keep you educated on networking and uh, the rest of the IT industry. And, and if you need to know more, packetpushers.net, that is everything you need to know about us. Check out our subscribe page for a complete listing of all of our RSS feeds. We're on Twitter and LinkedIn if you'd like to keep up with us that way or tell us things. And then last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.